Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome back to another episode of Jum'ah Nights As you all know we'll be continuing our series with regards to the maqamat of the imams And today we're going to be speaking about wilaya al-taqwiniyya I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode where we spoke about ilmul ghaib And this is somewhat a continuation of that very discussion But today we're not going to be using too many books as you can see uh, So without further ado we're going to get straight into the discussion about wilaya taqwiniyya So before we get into the discussion, I want to take this opportunity to congratulate all of the Shia of Amir al-Mu'mineen upon his birth on the 13th of Rajab and it is in his honour that we are speaking today with regards to Wilaya and just one part of that Wilaya, of that great man, of that individual who we know as Ali ibn Abi Talib So as you all know, this is a topic that's a little bit controversial you seem to hear a lot of different opinions about this There are people that call this Ghulu But as you all know, after having watched the Ghulu series That this cannot be involved in that So we're going to take some time today to explain this concept On a very brief surface level understanding And we're going to do that in five points Number one, we're going to define what is Wilaya Taqwiniya Number two, we're going to look at how we can understand it from a rational perspective Number three, we're going to look at an example from the Qur'an to explain this concept further. Number four, we're going to have a look in the Qur'an to see where the Qur'an affirms this concept for the Ahlul Bayt And number five, we're going to look for parallels with regards to this concept in the Ahadith of the Imams and the Ziyarat. So first of all, we want to start with this crucial question. What is Wilaya At-Taqwiniya? It is made up of two words. The first of them is wilaya, which you'll be all familiar with, which means guardianship or authority. Then we have the word ataqwiniya, which refers to those things which relate to creative authority, those things that relate to creation. And to make it easy, today we're going to be using the words creative authority to translate as al-wilaya we're using that just to make it a little bit easier even though it might not be a complete direct translation because it is a little bit difficult to do that considering the complexity of the word in the Arabic language. Wilayat Aqwiniya basically refers to any ability that Allah has given or bestowed upon every individual to be able to create anything, right? So creational authority or creative authority is what we refer to as Wilayat Aqwiniya. The question comes, how can we understand this from a rational perspective? An example I want to bring, to bring the concept closer to our minds is one that will bring it closer from some angles but may take it further away from other angles but nonetheless it is a good example to use with regards to Wilayat Aqwiniya and the example I want to use is the example of our imagination This is a specific example that I've taken from a lecture of Sayyid Dr. Rehan al-Nakhwi who spoke about this in a lot of detail um, and if you would like to understand it in further detail with regards to the example of the imagination I would suggest that you watch his lectures with regards to Wilayat Aqwiniya But if you would just like to take a moment In your imagination, imagine a lion in a jungle Walking around in that jungle and roaring And moving in a specific direction In your imagination you can see it You can see that lion, you can see him in the jungle as he roars and he moves in a specific direction So now that you've got that in your mind I want to speak to you about something else 
when we think about modern technology and the studies that have gone into teleportation, we see that there have been scientists in Australia who have managed to teleport one particle from one position to another position using a laser beam. So that is an example of progress that we see in relation to moving things, moving a particle from one place to another place using a laser beam, for example. And then if we take a look at studies with regards to materials in general, if we take a look at the study of nanotechnology, nanotechnology is something that I've studied in my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, where you find out that as particles get smaller and smaller at the nano level, the physical properties of that, of that specific particle change. They can act completely differently as to how they act when they are at a normal size. So we see in these studies and in a lot of writings that have been done in academic journals by professors in universities that this level of technology, this nanotechnology can be used as a tool in order to make physical properties of a specific particle be different so that we can utilize it for any given means. One example of this was, for example, the example of silver. Silver is very... Uh, rich in its material properties and very useful, but silver is expensive. So we see that many scientists have used nanotechnology and used small particles in order to exhibit the properties of silver in order to do the same things that silver does. So what we are seeing here is an increase in the research with regards to material and we are seeing that we don't actually know everything about physical material as of yet. We are still discovering new things as we go on. And some of this might sound strange and you might be thinking what is the relevance to this conversation but you may be able to draw some parallels as we go further in the conversation. Now I want to take you back. I mentioned to you earlier to imagine that lion in your mind right? As he roars and walks around the jungle. You forgot about it, didn't you? The fact that you forgot about it now means that that lion does not exist anymore. Even if it only existed in your mind, that is an example of the creative authority, the wilaya atsekwinia that you have. And every human being has the power of imagination, the power to be able to create anything in our minds, for it to exist within our minds, for us to sustain it in our minds. But as soon as our mind goes off it, it no longer exists. It goes into Adam. That thing no longer exists in reality. It no longer exists in your mind. It only exists so long as you are able to think about it. The only thing about that is that you don't have the ability to take what is in your mind and to bring it out onto the external reality that is in front of your eyes, that you actually see. So that is the only thing that you are missing with regards to creative authority. You have creative authority to be able to imagine in your mind and it's real in your mind, it exists in your mind, but it doesn't translate into the reality that is external from yourself. It only exists within you, within your own internal experience. And because of the weakness of your mind, you're unable to sustain its existence for too long. This is the parable of Wilayah Taqwiniya, where higher levels of Wilayah Taqwiniya, higher levels of creative authority, are that which allows the person's internal consciousness, their internal minds to interact with the external reality outside of themselves, which enables them to 
bring that which is on their minds into their reality. And that sound, might sound crazy, but if we take a parallel to something that we see in science today, something that actually exists, right? We take a parallel to quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics, there's a very, very, very famous experiment called the double slit experiment. In this experiment, we see that electrons, yeah? Electrons are what make up an atom. Every particle, everything that we see around us is made up of electrons. Electrons in this experiment act differently solely based on the fact that they are being observed. Think about that. Electrons, yeah? Things that, a particle that makes up an atom changes its behavior based on whether it's being observed or not being observed. And that is the one of the fundamental problems of quantum mechanics and something that needs an explanation in science. How can it be that the act of observation can change the action of an electron? An electron, you have to bear in mind, everything is made of electrons. If electrons are conscious and are able to know whether we are observing them or not, then that is a bit of a weird thought. That's crazy to think that everything around us is able to know that we are observing it or if we are not observing it. This is a problem that's been discussed extensively by many different professors of physics and they have come up with multiple different explanations. But one explanation that I found very interesting is that some of them have said that it is possible that there is an external unifying consciousness that every creation is connected to through which our consciousness is able to affect those electrons in that when we observe them, they act a specific way. And when we don't observe them, they act in a different way. And that's very interesting because that shows you the fundamental principle of the consciousness of a human being being able to affect and impact his external reality. If the electron is able to act differently based on whether they are being observed or not, then imagine being able to hone that level of consciousness to everything around us. Surely then we would be able to have an impact on our surroundings if we were to have that level of creational authority. As much as I love this topic, obviously we haven't got time to go into it deeply. This is not a physics lesson and it's not a lecture on quantum mechanics, but this is something that I just wanted to bring to the attention so that we're not thinking of Wulai Taqwini as something absolutely crazy. This is something that we can see the fundamental principles of in modern day science in that which has been studied by professors and scientists at universities. If you do have time and you're interested in this, then search up the double slit experiment on YouTube. Uh, if you're not too big on science, you can even write for children or, you know, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old and it will be able to explain to you the action of these electrons and how they change based on observation and a concept known as superposition. But we're going to move on now. So what we understand here from what we have discussed just now is that from a rational and scientific perspective, what do we have? We have firstly our imagination, which is able to create anything within our minds and for it to exist within our minds and be sustained. Number two, we have the idea of teleportation, something that has been worked on where a particle has been able to be moved from one position to another. Maybe I think it was just a couple of meters or maybe even just one meter using a laser beam. So that's 
another thing that is possible within the realm of possibility, things that have been done by science. Number three, we have this understanding that physical materials or properties are things that we are still exploring as human beings. And we're able to see that the same particle that does nothing at, at its normal size, when it's taken to its nano level, is able to exhibit completely different properties. So that is also something that is possible and within the realm of possibility and we have seen scientific studies to show that. And number four, of course, as we have just mentioned, the quantum mechanics example of the double slit experiment where we see that there is a possibility that our consciousness can affect our external reality and that which is actually happening on the ground. So the question would arise here, if the scientists are able to do that much at, with the tools that they have at their disposal, no divine intervention. What is it that you require in order to be able to hone that consciousness, that internal uh, creative authority to come to the external reality? It's clear that we require knowledge. If these scientists are able to do that with their limited level of knowledge in science, with that which encompasses experimentation, then think about divine knowledge. What kind of things would you be able to do with your, creative, with your creative authority if you were to have divine knowledge and understanding of how to hone that consciousness and bring it into the reality? This knowledge obviously can be acquired or attained in different ways. Maybe you might be using your tools, right? As a scientist, some you know, technology that you've worked on. But there's a higher level to it in that the knowledge that is divinely bestowed, which is also acquirable. That is also things that you can work on and you are able to attain that from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's take an example in the Quran to further explore this concept of Wilayat Aqwiniya. So a famous example that we see in the Quran is the story of Sulaiman and the throne of the Queen of Sheba. We see in Surah An-Naml, starting with the ayah number 38. Obviously the story is much longer, but I'm just going to read a few of the verses. Allah says, after the basmala, Sulaiman is speaking. He says, يَا أَيُّهَا الْمَلَأُ أَيُّكُمْ يَأْتِنِي بِعَرْشِهَا قَبْلَ أَنْ يَأْتُونِي مُسْلِمِينَ He says, which of you are able to bring me her throne before she comes to me in submission? Before they, the qawm, the qawm of the queen of Sheba, come to me in submission. The Quran says, قَالَ إِفْرِيتُمْ مِنَ الْجِنِّ أَنَا آتِيكَ بِهِ قَبْلَ أَن تَقُومَ مِنْ مَقَامِكَ وَإِنِّي عَلَيْهِ لَقَوِيٌّ أَمِينٌ The Ifrit from the jinn. And it is noteworthy here that the Ifrit from the jinn are known for their great capabilities in terms of speed, in terms of strength. So they're one of the, they're the higher levels of the jinns, the more powerful ones, right? So this Ifrit, what does he say? He says, I can bring it to you before you even stand up from the position that you're sitting in. And I am able to do that. I'm able to do that. I have the strength and the power enabled to do that. Then what happens? Yeah, so Suleiman has asked a large group of people, who's able to bring it for me? So they're almost like competing. So this Afrit, what he said? He said that I can bring it for you before you stand up from the place that you're sitting. Then the Quran says, It says that the one who had some knowledge from the book, the one who had some knowledge from the book said, I will bring it for you. He says, I will be able to bring it for you before... Now there's two meanings here. Can mean two things. 
the known meaning of this is the blink of an eye and that meaning can apply here but a deeper me a deeper look into the linguistic meaning of this can also refer to the act of light surrounding that eye so what he's saying is i can bring it to you faster than light gets to your eye the speed of light which is the fastest thing that we know he's saying i can bring it to you faster than that faster than the speed of light so this individual He's making a big claim. He's saying, before light reaches your eye, I can bring you her throne from Sheba. And that's a long distance away. So this individual, his name is Asif ibn Barqiyah. He's the wasi of Sulaiman. He says that I'm able to bring it to you before light reaches your eye. It mentions in the ayah that he has ilmun min al-kitab. He has some knowledge min al-kitab from the book. He doesn't have all of the knowledge of the book. Ilmun min al-kitab. He has some knowledge which enables him to bring a throne of the, of the magnificence of the Queen of Sheba. Those days, those thrones were the pride of a kingdom. So this is a heavy, heavy, heavy throne and it's far away. And he's saying, I can bring it to you before light reaches your eye. So he's showing here that this ilm that he's got from the kitab is the knowledge that we were speaking about earlier, the knowledge that is required in order to hone your internal consciousness to that which is happening in reality. So we see that Asif ibn Barqiyah, he has a level of knowledge that enables him to do that. Another thing that we notice here is that Asif ibn Barqiyah is the wasi of Sulaiman. So it would be from, it would be natural that we would expect that what he is able to do, Sulaiman is also able to do. So the question arises, why didn't Sulaiman do that? Sulaiman didn't do it because he wanted to show the power of his wasi. He wanted to show the level of knowledge and the level of capability that his wasi has, let alone him. Right? And to show the, the queen of Sheba, his level of capability and his power and the power of his wasi. So what do we see in the hadith with regards to this ayah of the Quran? We see in a hadith in... Kitab al-Hujjah in Al-Kafi volume 1 We have a narration from Imam al-Hadi From an individual called Ali ibn Muhammad al-Nawfali He says that I heard him say Ismullah al-A'zam thalathatu wa sab'oona harfa He says that The greatest name of Allah Ismullah al-A'zam Is made up of 73 letters Kana inda asif harfun Fatakallama bihi Fankharaqat lahu al-ard He says that asif had one letter from the 73 letters of the greatest name of Allah. So he spoke it. So the earth opened wide for him. It, it split open for him. Of course, it says just for him. The people that were around him wouldn't have seen the earth split open. And this example that is used by the Imam here is mudarat. It's, just a, it's, it's trying to explain to us the concept in the best way that we can understand it. So it says that the earth opened up between where he was and Saba, the city. So he brought the Arsh of Bilqis, the throne of Bilqis, until he put it in front of Suleiman. Then it says, He says that then the earth, it closed itself up in less than the time that the light takes to reach the eyes. And then the Imam says, And for us, 
from the 73 letters of the Ismullah Al-A'zam, we know 72 of them. So he's made a comparison there. He says, Asif knew one, and he was able to do that. We know 72 of them. وَحَرْفٌ إِنْدَ اللَّهِ مُسْتَأْثِرٌ بِهِ فِي إِلْمِ الْغَيْبِ And the Imam says, and one harf Allah keeps to himself in his knowledge of the unseen. This is one narration. Then we have a narration above it, speaking about the same thing, Ismullah Al-A'zam, and that which was given to the Prophets. We have a narration here from Imam Sadiq salam. He says, إِنَّ إِيسَ بْنُ مَرْيَمَ أُعْطِيَ حَرْفَيْنِ كَانَ يَعْمَلُ بِهِمَا He says that Isa ibn Maryam was given two letters from the letters of Ismullah Al-A'zam, which are 73 letters. And he used to work with these two letters. Now think about the things that Isa ibn Maryam did. Isa ibn Maryam brought the dead to life. Isa ibn Maryam created a bird from clay. He cured the leper. Isa walks on water. Isa did all of these miracles. How? Two letters. Two letters of the Ismullah Al-A'zam. Then it mentions, And Ibrahim was given eight letters. And Nuh was given 15 letters. And Adam was given 25 of those letters. He says that all of those were combined in Muhammad and the name of Allah, the greatest name of Allah is 73 letters and Muhammad was given 72 of them and only one was kept hidden from him. So we see in these narrations that the prophets were also given these letters from Ismullah Al-A'zam and they were able to do their miracles and the things that they were able to do in their creative authority using this knowledge, this divine knowledge that was bestowed upon them. And as we know from the du'as and ziyarat, there are actually layers to the Ismullah Al-A'zam. Here we see it just mentioned as Ismullah Al-A'zam but we see in one of the du'as we say to Allah, وَبِسْمِكَ الْعَعْظَمِ 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 الْأَجَلِّ الْعَعْزِ الْأَكْرَمِ أَلَّذِي خَلَقْتَهُ فَاسْتَقَرَّ فِي ذِلِّكَ We say that I ask you by your greatest, greatest, greatest name. You see here that there are gradients. There is the greatest name of Allah and there is the greatest and greatest. That which Allah created and it remained in His shadow. It doesn't leave Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is his greatest, greatest, greatest name. And that is the one that is exclusive to the Haqiqatul Muhammadiyah, the Muhammadan reality. And is specific and exclusive to them. The same way that we mentioned last week with regards to Ilmul Ghaib, that Allah chose them with his specific Ghaib. He chose you with regards to his Ghaib. The same way. This Ismullah Al-A'zam is specific to them. So we see here, obviously we see in these narrations that they mentioned that Rasulullah was given 72 and the Imams were given 72 out of the 73. We see this as a form of mudarat. The Imams are making sure that they are keeping the differentiation between them and Allah very clear. You have to think, we spoke about the Ghulat. The Ghulat were running around looking for any reason 
for them to start comparing the Imams to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there had to be a level of wisdom in the ways that the Imams spoke with regards to their knowledge and their deep knowledge and their status and their ranks. So that's what we see here. Because if we take a look at another narration with regards to the same story, Asif ibn Barqiyah, what do we see? We have a narration from Imam al-Sadiq and this narration is very interesting because it tells you everything from the start to the end. Why did the Imams sometimes say that they didn't know the Ilmul Ghaib? Why is it that we see sometimes in the Quran that the Imams may have not known the Ilmul Ghaib? Why is it that we see these narratives at all if the Imams actually did know these things? We have this narration from Sadir, a very well-known companion of Imam Sadiq He says, Kuntu ana wa Abu Basir wa Yahya al-Bazzar wa Dawood ibn Kathir fi majlisi Abi Abdullah إِذْ خَرَجَ إِلَيْنَا وَهُوَ مُغْضَبٌ He says that we, it was me, Abu Basir, another well-known companion, Yahya al-Bazar and Dawood ibn Kathir, in the majlis of Imam Sadiq and he came and he was very angry. فَلَمَّا أَخَذَ مَجْلِسُهُ قَالَ When he sat in his place, obviously there was a place that was designated for the Imam السلام, he sat in it, and what did he say? He says, يَا عَجَبًا لِأَقْوَامٍ يَزْعَمُونَ أَنَّا نَعْلَمُ الْغَيْبِ مَا يَعْلَمُ الْغَيْبَ إِلَّا اللَّهَ زَوَجَلُ He says, I'm shocked at people who claim that we know the ghayb. Only Allah, no one knows the ghayb except for Allah. لَقَدْ هَمَمْتُ بِذَرْبِ جَارِيَةِ فُلَانَةَ فَحَرَبَتْ مِنِّي فَمَا عَلِمْتُ فِي أَيِّ بُيُوتِ الدَّارِ هِيَ He says that I wanted to punish one of my serving girls, so she ran away from me. And she went into a place, and I don't know where she went. So Imam al-Sadiq is saying, I'm shocked as to how people say that we have ilmul ghayb. This is what he's saying. So Sadir and some of the other companions, they're a little bit confused. They're saying there, they're saying, okay. Sadir says, فَلَمَّا أَنْقَامَ مِنْ مَجْلِسِهِ وَصَارَ فِي مَنْزِلِهِ You see, this is different now. Imam al-Sadiq was saying in his majlis. In his majlis, all sorts of people come. You've got people from the opposing sect. You've got people from the Shia, you've got people from the enemies, from Banu Abbas, you've got people from like all sorts of walks of life are sitting in the majlis of Muhammad Sadiq. But then he says when he left his majlis and he went to his house, Sarafi Manzilihi, he says, He says when he got to his house, me, Abu Basir and Muyassar went to him. And we said to him, and these are the close companions of the Imams. They say, So Sadir says to the Imam, he says, May we be sacrificed for you. We heard you saying some stuff about your serving girl. And we know about you that you have a lot of ilm. Right? They're suggesting that you would have known which house she went into. You have that knowledge. He says, And we don't say that you have ilmul ghayb. Yeah? So, you know, like, we're a bit shocked at what you said, basically, is what they're saying to the Imam. So the Imam says to him, Ya Sadir, alam al-Quran? He says to Sadir, Have you not read the Quran? Sadir says, Bala. He says, Yes. The Imam says, فَهَلْ وَجَدْتَ فِيمَا خَرَأْتَ مِنْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ قَالَ الَّذِي إِنْدَهُ إِلْمٌ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ أَنَا آتِيكَ بِهِ قَبْلَ إِنْ يَرْتَدْزَ إِلَيْكَ طَرْفُكَ He says, have you not read the ayah in the Quran where Allah says that the person who had a bit of knowledge from the book said, I will bring it for you, the arsh, before the light is able to reach your eyes? قَالَ قُلْتُ جُئِلْتُ فِدَاكَ قَدْ He says, may I be sacrificed for you? I have read it. The Imam says, 
فهل عرفت الرجل؟ Have you said, have, do you know who that person was? وهل علمت ما كان عنده من علم الكتاب? And do you know what he had from the knowledge of the book? قال قلت أخبرني به. He says to the imam, tell me, tell me more about it. The imam says, قدر, قدر قطرة من الماء في البحر الأخضر. فما يكون ذلك من علم الكتاب? The imam says, Asif ibn Barqiya, this individual had a drop from the green ocean from Ilm al-Kitab. He had a drop from the green ocean. The reason why he says green ocean is because in the Arabic language they use this to describe a vast ocean. You know when you stand at the beach, for example, and you look at the sea, if you look into the distance, you might see something a little bit, you, it might seem like it's going green. Right? So that is to suggest that this is a large, huge sea. So that's why he says, in the green sea. To say that what he had was so small in that vast ocean. So what is that from Ilm al-Kitab? That's what the Imam is saying to Sadir. So Sadir says, He says, uh, May I be sacrificed for you? How small was his knowledge? And then the Imam responds to Sadir. He says, فَقَالْ يَا سَدِيرُ مَا أَكْثَرَ هَذَا أَنْ يَنْسِبُهُ اللَّهَ عَزَّ وَجَلْ إِلَّا الْإِلْمِ الَّذِي أُخْبِرَكَ بِهِ The Imam says, يَا سَدِيرْ مَا أَكْثَرَ هَذَا He says, no, don't say how small is this, say how big is this. He's saying in comparison to you. In comparison to you, Sadir, what Asif had was huge. He says, how, how, uh, how much is this أَنْ يَنْسِبُهُ اللَّهَ عَزَّ وَجَلْ he says, how great is it that Allah would attribute to him the knowledge of that which I teach you. He says, Ya Sadir, فَهَلْ وَجَدْتَ فِي مَا قَرَأْتَ مِنْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ أَزَّ وَجَلَّ أَيْضًا قُلْ كَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَكُمْ وَمَنْ عِنْدَهُ إِلْمُ الْكِتَابِ He says, have you also read in the Quran where Allah says, say, it sufficient for me. As a witness is Allah and the one who has knowledge of the entire book. He says, I've read it. May I be sacrificed for you. So the Imam asks him, He says, which one knows more? The one who knows the whole book or the one who has a bit of knowledge from the book? He says, of course, the one who has the knowledge of the whole book. So what does the Imam say? So the Imam pointed towards his chest. He says, the knowledge of the book, all of it is with us. While pointing at his chest and he repeated it twice. So the Imam here, he's drawn a comparison. He's spoken in detail and he's done the comparison there with another ayah in the Quran to say that there are those who know the book entirely. So what do we see in this narration? We see in this narration, first of all, that the Imams employed taqiyah to a certain extent. When they were in their majlis arm, there was a lot of people there. Obviously, the Imam is not going to say, oh, I know ilmul ghayb, I'm the Imam, I'm infallible. So that the enemies can know exactly what's going on. They say, Ja'far al-Sadiq is saying this, let's go kill him. Of course, Imam al-Sadiq is not going to do that. Imam al-Sadiq was more clear when he was clear with, with just with his companions, the ones that were close to him. Abu Basir and Sadir are close companions of the Imam. That was when he was able to open up to them. When they asked, why did you say that? The Imam clarified and he mentioned, he said, listen, we know all of it. 
The whole knowledge of the book is with us. What you thought was correct. Don't worry. Like this is this message wasn't for you. That was in the Majlis arm, right? My close companions, I will tell you of the knowledge that I have. So that's why when we see these narrations from the Imams, in some narrations we might see that the Imams are negating Al-Mul Ghayb for themselves. These are to be understood within their context. I'm not going to sit here and argue about did the Imam say it or not. I'm saying that he did say them. I'm saying that the Imams would have said in many narrations that they don't know the Ghayb. But they would have said them with a wisdom and principles. You see, this is where it is important that we recognize that not everything that the Imams say they want us to act by. That is why they teach us principles in understanding their hadith. Right? This is where we see the concept of taqiyya. We see the concepts of mudarat. All the concepts we spoke about last week. The qaida of matali and majari. The qaida of muhkam and mutashabih. All of these principles are to be utilized in the same way within the ahadith. So that we can understand how they intended for us to understand their words and their ahadith. And how they wanted us to learn from their ahadith. Alayhi salam. So we want to ask the question then, where does the Qur'an affirm this concept for the Ahlul Bayt is, as Imam Sadiq mentioned in that verse, where Allah says in Surah Al-Ra'ad, in ayah number 43, Allah says, After the Basmalah, وَيَقُولُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَسْتَ مُرْسَلًا قُلْ كَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَكُمْ وَمَنْ عِنْدُهُ الْمُلْكِتَابِ He says that those who disbelieve say to you, to the Prophet, he's speaking to the Prophet, Lesta Mursalan, that you are not a messenger. Qul kafa billahi shahidan bayni wa baynakum wa man indahu ilmul kitab. He says that say that it is sufficient for me the witness of Allah between me and you and the person who has knowledge of the book. So we see here that he's, being, he's mentioning somebody who has knowledge of the book that is not Allah and is not Rasulullah. I'm going to say that line again. Do we need a hadith to understand who this individual is? Someone who is not Allah and is not the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is a third individual who has complete knowledge of the entire book. As Shia, we don't need a hadith to explain to us who this individual could be. We know the status of the rest of the prophets. We know the status of all of the companions. We know the status of all of the people mentioned in the Quran. There's only one person who this status works for and it is none other than Ali ibn Abi Talib salam. We don't need a hadith to explain this. However, like we always do, we're going to provide it anyway. We're going to look at this hadith in Bihar al-Anwar, it was where I'm going to read it from. It is originally in Tafsir al-Qummi. We have very short hadith, very nice. Imam Sadiq salam says, The one who has the knowledge of the complete book is Amir Mu'mineen alayhi salam. Very short and nice hadith to explain this ayah. So what do we see? We see that the one who had ilmun min al-kitab was able to bring the arsh of the queen of Sheba over that long distance and do it within a blink of an eye. He was able to do it before light was able to get to the eyes of Sulaiman. We see Nabi Isa with two letters of the Ismullah al-A'zam, two letters from the book. And he's able to bring the dead to life. He's able to walk on water. He's able to know what people are eating in their houses. We see all of those things attributed to the Prophet who has only two letters from the Ismullah al-A'zam. So what more would you require in order to be able to understand that Wilayah Taqwiniya again is a small thing for Ahlul Bayt 
this is a small thing. If Amir al-Mu'mineen brings back the son, that is a small thing for Amir al-Mu'mineen. That is not something that we should sit there questioning, thinking, is that possible? Can Amir al-Mu'mineen do that? Is that hulu? That's a really, really silly question. If we are to look over all of these episodes and the principles that we've mentioned and we've spoken about the history of Ghulu and Ghulat and we've spoken about Muhkam and Mutashabih we can see very clearly that these ayat are Muhkam these ayat are clear you can see here very clearly that Allah is mentioning a third personality who has complete knowledge of the book who is not Allah and is not Rasulullah so what further clarity would you require from the Qur'an? That is that the highest level of ihkam, the highest level of a muhkam verse that you can find. And again, I always like to emphasize this point that the Qur'an is always in parallel and in symmetry with the ahadith and the ziyarat. There's never a case where you'll see something in the ahadith that we strongly believe in, that we don't find it in the Qur'an, we don't find it in the ziyarat. No way. There's always a symmetry between them. We see here, that person who has knowledge of the entire book is able to do that which he wishes with regards to the power that has been given to him by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We see this in the hadith of Al-Kafi that we have read in previous episodes. We have a narration from Muhammad ibn Sinan who narrates from Imam al-Jawad alayhi salam. He says, كنت عند أبي جعفر الثاني فأجريت اختلاف الشيعة فقال يا محمد He says, that I went to Imam al-Jawad and I told him the ikhtilaf of the Shia, the differences that the Shia have between themselves. The Imam says, Ya Muhammad, inna Allah tabarak wa ta'ala lam yazal mutafarridan biwahdaniyatih. He says, O oh Muhammad, he's speaking to Muhammad ibn Sinan, he says, inna Allah tabarak wa ta'ala lam yazal mutafarridan biwahdaniyatih. Allah was alone in his oneness, thumma khalaqa Muhammadan wa Aliyan wa Fatima. Then he created Muhammad and Ali and Fatima So they remained with him for a thousand lifetimes And a thousand alf is the greatest number in the Arabic language So that tells you this is an infinite amount of light times Then he says Then he created everything So he showed them, he, wit he made them witness his creation And he made sure that everything that he created was in obedience to them and he delegated the affairs of this creation to them. He mentions that they are able to make halal that which they want, they're able to make haram that which they want, and they do not wish except that Allah wishes before them. So we see here. This halal and haram, by the way, is not with regards to fiqh about whether it's haram to eat something or haram to do something. This is with regards to the haram and the halal of the taqween, of the creation. Because the whole conversation here is about creation. It says that it was made obedient to them. So they are able to make that permissible in creation that which they want. And they are able to make impermissible that which they want in creation. They have full control over this creation which has been bestowed to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they act by his amr. And that's what we see in Ziyarat Jami'at al-Kabira, which is what we would like to end with. We see here again, we spoke about this last week, but we see here as well in Ziyarat Jami'ah, the Imam teaches us to say, Bikum Allah wa bikum yakhtim. Wabikum yunazil al-ghayth wa bikum yumsiku illa so he says that it is by you that Allah began, he opened, and it is with you that he will seal. So we see that symmetry between that idea 
and what we just read in Al-Kafi. And this is also in the Quran, but we don't have uh, time to go through that right now. And it is through you that he brings down the rain. And through you, he keeps the sky from falling upon the earth, except by his permission. Yeah. So we see this, that Allah uses them as a vessel. Yeah. And he, he has given them the authority in order to do these things. And it is through them that he does these things. And then we go back to the explanation that we had last week. And that line that summarizes all of these concepts into one again. Where the Imam teaches us to say, Every single thing is humiliated before you. This is the single line that should make you not want to question Wilayah Taqwinia or Ilm al Ghayb ever again. Because these things that are being referred to here is everything within creation. If everything within creation is humiliated before them, is within their hands, is within their control, then what is Wilayah Taqwinia? Wilayah Taqwinia is just a, you know, I brought a throne from Sheba to, to here. I, you know, brought the dead back to life. I can see what is going on in people's houses. Those are very small things when we speak about creation. These are the hadith of the Imams. Look at how the Imam ends that narration when we look in Al-Kafi, in that narration that we were reading earlier with regards to the creation. He says, Ya Muhammad, هَذِهِ الْدِيَانَةُ الَّتِي مَنْ تَقَدَّمَهَا مَرَقُ وَمَنْ تَخَلَّفَ عَنْهَا مَحَقُ وَمَنْ لَزِمَهَا لَحَقُ خُذْهَا إِلَيْكَ Ya Muhammad. He says, this is the religion, this is the belief that whomsoever was to overstep it, then he would perish. And whoever was to digress it, then he would be lost. And whoever was to hold on to it, then he would reach his destination. He says, take it with you, Ya Muhammad. This is the belief. This is the correct and complete belief of the Shia. This belief is what the Imams have taught us. This is what it takes to be a complete Shi'i in your Aqeedah with regards to the Imams of Ahlul Bayt salam. This is something that should be easy on the hearts to accept. And inshallah it is. Because we've spoken here with regards to the evidences in the Qur'an. We've spoken with regards to rational perspective. We've spoken with regards to the ahadith and we've, we've spoken with regards to the ziyarat. It's a full package. They're all symmetrical. There's no more questions to ask inshallah. Hopefully next week we'll be moving on to a new topic which is with regards to istighatha. Where we'll be speaking about can you ask the imams for your needs? Some of you may be thinking after these two episodes, there's no point in doing that because you already have your answer to your question, but we're going to do it anyway. So I'll see you again for that next week. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.